Good morning. It's good to be with you, Mount Airy Baptist Church. It's always good to be with uh, you all in Dr. Shorter's place. It's a privilege to be like second or third string right behind uh, Dr. Shorter. I'll, I'll take that. Uh, this morning we'll be in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we'll start in verses 19 and 20, but we will back up all the way through the beginning of chapter 2 and then work our way through. If you're joining us this morning from the Life Center, I want to say a welcome to you as, as well. As you know, each sports rivalry has its stories, its myths, even its legends. Tigers will tell insulting tales on Gamecocks, Tar Heels laugh at Dukies, and on and on. Sometimes, though, one fan base will tell an absurd story about itself to demonstrate its superior passion over its rival. One such story circulates among fans of Kentucky Wildcats basketball. A recent basketball game between the University of Kentucky and the University of Louisville was held in Rupp Arena there in Lexington, the home of the Wildcats. An elderly woman was sitting there at the game all alone. There was an empty seat beside her. And eventually one observer had had enough. He had to get to the bottom of this. He had to know why this seat was empty. So he approached her and he said, man, in all of my years attending games in this arena, rarely have I ever seen an empty seat, much less at a game between these two teams. Whose chair is this? She paused for a moment and she began to explain this. This seat belonged to my late husband. He and I were season ticket holders here for 28 years. And the man said, ma'am, I'm really sorry to hear that, but on a day like this, could, could you not find a friend, a family member, maybe a, maybe a cousin to, to come with you to the game? And she said, huh, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we get confused over what really matters. And we have a way of turning life upside down. In your life right now, you feel the competition of different tensions in your life. There's your family, there's your work, there's your church, there are your hobbies, there are the stresses, there are the hopes and dreams, and there are the pains and disappointments. And in the midst of all that, you feel like Jesus ought to fit into that picture somewhere, that you need to fit Jesus into your life. But our instincts fail us in the way we frame that question. As if it's even appropriate for us to talk about fitting Jesus into our lives. I mean, think about it. If I have to fit Jesus into my life, who's really in control? It's a problem of lordship. But even if you reverse that and say, well, I need to somehow make myself fit for Jesus, I need to make myself fit for him, then you still have a problem. Because who can possibly do that? The problem of faith. Trying to make ourselves fit for Jesus is like the man with heart disease who wants to work out and get fit before the surgery. What he does, his efforts to improve his health ahead of that surgery will kill him. 
Those things will kill him unless first something about him is altered, changed, healed. And it's this problematic dynamic that forms the main problem with the way that we think about our faith and our priorities. And this is the problem that jumps off the page to us in the letter to the Galatians. This is the problem that Paul addresses to the Galatian believers. It's written to an area in modern-day Turkey, and in this letter, the Apostle Paul is not happy. In fact, this is often called the red-hot letter. He is stunned, he is shocked, he is surprised that the believers in the area of Galatia had so quickly forgotten the gospel that he preached to them. Now, when we read it, perhaps we shouldn't be too stunned because in reality, we're not far from the Galatian believers at all. Now, for them, the problem was the Judaizers, these false missionaries, men who infiltrated these churches and they would say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but, but you must first submit to the Jewish customs in order to be saved. So these, these false missionaries would discredit Paul. They would discredit his message, and the Galatian believers bought the lie, and they turned the gospel upside down, and it went like this. If we will align ourselves with the ethnic group from which Jesus was born, if we will obey all of their customs and religious traditions, and if we will follow all of their rules, then we will make ourselves fit for Jesus. We'll make ourselves fit for God. Now, the reality is that we do the same sort of thing just in a different context and in a different way. If I will attend my Bible study fellowship, if I will send my kids to Awana, if I will get really close to all of the Jesus people at church and do the things they do, go on the mission trip, volunteer, give my tithe, pray before I eat, listen to Christian radio. If I will do all of those things, then maybe, just maybe, I will make myself fit for Jesus. The moment we think that way, the gospel gets turned upside down. In the same way the Galatians turned the gospel upside down. We begin to value what it is that we think we do for God. And in valuing those things, we start to forget what it is that God has done once for all for us. It's to this kind of thinking, Paul emphatically says, no! In Galatians chapter 1, he defends his position as a real apostle of Christ and, and his gospel as a message sent from God. In chapter 2, he gets into the contents of this gospel by relating to the Galatians some personal stories. And in very vivid language in Galatians chapter 2, Paul reminds us that we must die to any form of human merit before God. Look with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now what is it that Paul means when he says that he was crucified with Christ? Paul did not bear the sins of the world on his shoulders. Paul was not crucified to a cross beside Jesus Christ. Paul meant that he had died to himself, that he had died to any sense of self-reliance or self-confidence before God. He gave up on thinking that he could in any way make himself fit for Jesus. Frankly, here Paul is simply reiterating that which Jesus had already said. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Being fit for Jesus means fitting ourselves to a crucified form of life. That we die to self. Now, all this is relatively easy to say. What's difficult is to conceive how this looks in real life. How we go about our days. How we set our priorities. How we think about living life with God in Christ. That's hard to think through. But thankfully, Paul makes it crystal clear in the way he relates personal stories in all of Galatians chapter 2. In fact, he reveals three forms of human merit which we must die to, that we must set aside. And the first claim in Galatians chapter 2 is we must die to the rewards of reputation. Die to the rewards of reputation. Look with me in chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, who was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now what's going on here? 
In verses 1 through 10, Paul wants the Galatians to know that even though he received his message directly from God, you remember that Damascus Road conversion that he had, it was in fact the very same message that all of the apostles were preaching. So he recounts his second visit to Jerusalem, and this time he went to talk with Peter and with James and with John to make sure all of them had the gospel straight. To be sure they were all telling the same story. They did and they were. And they all agreed that Paul should continue his mission to preach this gospel to the Gentiles while they continued to preach it to the Jews. This was a really important meeting for Paul. Because these men were, as he says, pillars of the church. These men had been disciples of Jesus personally. But notice what Paul says about them in verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seem to be influential added nothing to me. Paul is saying something here that you and I need to know. Peter, James, and John held very high positions. They were very well respected. They had great reputations, but their reputations alone would not get them justified before God. That even they had to say and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Position, reputation, they aren't enough. Now, it's true that all of us guard our image, don't we? In fact, on a, on a subconscious level, we will dress to maintain a certain image. We will Facebook things to maintain and portray a certain image. Maybe you've noticed that you've got a friend with someone on Facebook. When you meet them in real life, it doesn't seem to be the same individual because we're projecting certain things over those media forms. In a culture like ours here in South Carolina, we are sensitive to, and rightly, to the pressures against our faith and to the, the ways that our faith is threatened in this secularizing culture in which we live. And yet we still live in a place where sometimes faith carries certain advantages. Since I've lived here, I've noticed that not one person I know has been elected to public office without at some point speaking of their faith. Because it's part of, of who we are. Uh, in fact, it, it might not be, but it might be that in your workplace, that being a person of faith actually has some advantages. It might help you get the promotion. I noticed at Anderson University, man, by the time they are sophomores, the young men have figured out very quickly that there are certain advantages to playing the Jesus card. There are certain advantages to going to FCA or RUF or BCMY. Because it'll help them get the date. That's why. That's why. In a place like ours, faith may have some social advantages. But you better die to it. We better die to it because these behaviors can trickle down into our beliefs and we begin to think that somehow we can make ourselves fit for God by projecting a certain image without a cross, 
without repentance, without faith, and without a crucified form of life. So, I mean, sure, do the things that Christians do. Yes, but do them with a cross on your shoulder and not with rewards in your mind. Die to the, reputa- to the, to the benefits of reputation. Secondly, Paul claims that we must die to the perceived benefits of our birth. Look in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's Peter he's talking about. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's the Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Beginning here in verse 11, the account takes a really interesting twist. When Peter came to Antioch, he was, well, he was two-faced. When none of the Jews from Jerusalem were around, he would sit down and eat dinner with the Gentiles. Why? Because eating together was a sign of being in unity under the blessing of God. But when the Jews from Jerusalem showed up, he would step back. And he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles any longer. He would only go and circle up and eat with the Jews. Why? Because eating together was a sign of being in unity under the blessing of God. And the Jews thought only they really had that. So Paul called Peter out to his face, not because he had been rude, even though he had been rude, but because in this he had compromised the gospel. What brings us into unity under the blessing of God is the message of Jesus Christ, period. Not the place of our birth. Not our national identity. Not our ethnic or racial makeup. It is the message of Jesus Christ alone that draws us into unity under the blessing of God. This is the message that we preach when we take the Lord's Supper together. Look, we are eating together in unity under the blessing of God because and only because of what God has done for us in and through the person of Jesus. This is the the fire that, that that fuels missions. Now, I doubt that any of you here think, or you're tempted to think, because you were born in a certain place, or you're from a certain race, that somehow that automatically gets you closer to God. If you do think that way, well, that's a, that's a satanic thought. And I pray that the Spirit of God would purge it from you, but something very close to it lingers just beneath the surface of our hearts. One of my best friends in the world is named Brennan. We were college roommates 25 years ago. Our families vacationed together this past summer. We talk every week. We text every day. Uh, he, he came to visit us in Anderson in October, spent the weekend with us, he and his wife and their two kids, went to church with us, and all of that. 
Um, he was, man, he's a good dude. Raised in a Southern Baptist church, called to ministry, went to seminary, did missions in the Middle East for some years. He's like the standard bearer for the things we value as Southern Baptists. Go, make disciples of all the nations. That's him, man. That's him. His wife's name is Abla. Abla is a Palestinian. Instinctively, which one do we assume is closest to Jesus? Now, before you make that judgment, let me tell you some things about Abla. Abla was born and, and raised on a family farm in a small town called Nazareth of Galilee. That farm has been in the family for as long as anyone can remember, millennia perhaps. And the story in their family is that they have been believers in the Lord Jesus Christ pretty much since the morning he came out of the grave alive, right? Do you see sometimes what we are tempted to do in the categories in which we place people? Sometimes we're tempted to take things that frankly have nothing to do with Jesus and we use them to decide who is and who isn't close to Jesus. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's be very careful with the labels we use on people. Local. Foreigner. Conservative. City boy. Country dude, these labels that we use can obscure the one singular truth that we must see when we see all of humanity. We must see a person made in God's image, precious in his sight and in desperate need of redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why we do missions. Because it's not by birth that gets us into the kingdom. It's by the message of the gospel alone. Breaking down these kinds of walls and getting the message out to all kinds of people was a big, big deal in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the early church. Just read places like the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus with the woman at the well, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 15, the whole book of Romans, Ephesians chapter 2, Philemon, Revelation 4, 5, and 6, and right here in Galatians 2, it's a big deal in the Bible. In Revelation, the vision there is people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation gathered around that throne and worship. If it's a big deal in the Bible, getting the message to all people and all kinds of people has to be a big deal to us too because it's only with the gospel They'll be reconciled to God. So die to the benefits of your reputation. Paul says we got to die to the perceived benefits of our birth. And thirdly, we have to die to the reward of good works. We have to die to the perceived rewards of our good works. Look in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Paul says. 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Now the reason that these Judaizers, these false missionaries, insisted so heavily heavily on people keeping all of the Jewish laws in order to be saved was that they genuinely believed that Jewishness had its advantages. And in a way, they were perfectly right. The Jews were the recipients of the covenant. The Jews possessed the law of God. But even obedience to those privileges could not save them, Paul says. Works of the law cannot justify us. Not because there is anything wrong with God's law. It's because there is something wrong with us. Like a hungry buzzard flying over the grain fields of Kansas. Think about this. Below him is all the food he could ever want. That grain in those fields would nourish him all the days of his life. And there's nothing wrong with that grain. What's his problem? He doesn't want it. He prefers the carcass. He likes rotting flesh. So it is with us. God's law is good. God's law reveals His character, His will, His ways, His plans. The problem is us. We don't want it. We are given to. Our nature is in us to prefer what will rot our souls. I heard the story of a pastor who boarded a plane heading out west, and he sat down beside a young man named Adam, and they began to talk. And when he told Adam what he did for a living, obviously the conversation turned toward eternal things, life with God, and heaven and hell. And Adam was very quick to certify to the pastor that he knew for sure that he was definitely going to heaven when he died. And the pastor said, hold up. How do you know that? What makes you so sure that you are going to heaven when you die? And Adam says, well, I've, I've always been honest at work and I've done pretty well at the marriage thing. The pastor said, okay. Have you always been honest at work? And have you always been good at the marriage thing? Adam hesitated for a minute, and the pastor reached out and took a note card. And on that note card, he said, "I, I just, I want you to think about something. And on the note card, he drew a ladder. He drew rungs on the ladder. He said, I want you to imagine the top rung of this ladder is the perfect righteousness of God. Now, Adam, who would you say is the most righteous person on planet Earth? And Adam said, well, Billy Graham, I guess. And then the pastor said, you know what? You're probably right. But I've even heard Billy Graham say that he knows that he 
falls short of the glory of God. So Adam, let's do this. Turn the card over and he said, let's pretend this is a scorecard now. And Adam, I just want you to think about the last three years of your life. Just the last three years. Not your whole life, just the last three years. Over the last three years, have you always been honest at work? Adam said, Pastor put an X on the scorecard. He said, Adam, over the past three years, have you always been good at your marriage? Adam said, no. The next on the scorecard, and he looked at him and said, Adam, how many X's should I put? See, if we are still of the mindset that, man, my reputation will get me there, or my heritage will get me there, or my good works will get me there, I'm a good person, God, see how good I am? You better make sure that you exceed the top rung and achieve the perfect righteousness of God. Otherwise, God's law does not show you that you are on the way to heaven. God's law shows you that you're on the way to hell, and you need to be rescued. You need to be saved. I don't know about you all, but when I read the Ten Commandments, I don't go like this. <laughs> yeah. That's not what I do. I read the Ten Commandments, and I cry with the Apostle Paul, Woe is me. I need a Savior. I need to be rescued. In verse 19, Paul died to the law, died through the law, to the law. In other words, Paul knows that the law killed him. It obliterated him. It eliminated his chances of being made right with God on his own. There had to be some other way, and it's this way. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. Believing in my reputation, that's gone. Believing in my heritage, that's gone. Thinking I can do enough good works to make myself right with God, that's gone. All of that is dead. I have died to those things. I have been crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, I live. I'm not dead. And the life that I now live, I live in, in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's this. Christ Jesus fully satisfied the righteousness that God demands and he fully paid the penalty for the unrighteousness that we've committed. Amen? The gospel sets us free. The gospel sets us free from thinking, somehow i got to make Jesus fit into my life. Somehow i got to make myself fit for Jesus. Those things will never work. But this one slogan, this one thing should be the banner by which you live your life. The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for its piercing power. We thank you for its hopeful promise. We thank you for the fact that it sets us free. Father, if there's one here today that does not know the freedom that can be had by faith in Jesus, that today by your Holy Spirit you would open their eyes, that you would work in their heart and show them their need to put trust in Christ Jesus 
alone. For those who are living the life of faith, Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to not so quickly forget the gospel. Help us to not so quickly value the things that we think we do for you and we forget what you've done for us. We love you, Lord, because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.